For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're in this section of Romans 9, 10, and 11, a section that's talking about God's dealings in history. Now imagine that you walk into Starbucks tomorrow and you go up to the counter and you're like, I'd like a cup of coffee. And they're like, oh, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> you're like, okay, how about a Frappuccino? Like, sorry, we don't do that anymore either. What about one of those little, like, uh, pastry thingies? <laughs> sorry, we're not doing that either. Well, what can I get now at Starbucks? Rubber chickens. <laughs> We've moved entirely over to rubber chickens. Now, that'd be a little confusing. You're like, the whole time there's been a Starbucks, they've done coffee, and now all of a sudden, it looks like a complete change of direction, and now they're doing rubber chickens. And for the Christians in Paul's day, when they were looking at what God is doing, what they were experiencing was a little bit of that same confusion. That all along the way, this had been a, a religion that, was, that had came out of the Jewish nation, the scriptures all written by the Jewish people. The Messiah came from the Jewish people just like God promised in the Old Testament. All of his disciples were Jewish. All of these books in the New Testament being written by Jews. And then, increasingly so, non-Jews are responding to the message of forgiveness. And the Jews, some are responding, but many, many, many are not. And they're rejecting their own Jewish Messiah. And so this was very confusing and, and left a lot of questions in his readers' minds. Now, last week we studied Romans chapter 9, where we saw that God's got a right to work through whatever nation he wants, and he can change direction whenever he wants to. He doesn't owe anybody anything. And also God's original choice of the Jewish nation was not because he owed them something or he had to do it or because they were so righteous. It was because he decided to do it and made some promises to their the, you know, the very first uh, Jew, Abraham, and many of his descendants along the way. Now this week, we're going to look at Romans 10 and 11. We've got a lot to cover. We won't be able to, re able to read every verse, but we'll, we'll cover the whole thing and we'll read most of it. This week, we're still struggling with the key questions in the mind of Paul's audience, which were one, why do most Jews reject Jesus? Two, does this mean that God's plan has failed? Did God make some sort of a mistake? And third, how should Jews and Gentiles, or non-Jews, be viewed today? So he'll interact with those questions here in Romans 10 and 11, continuing the, the flow of thought from last week. And the basic idea for Romans 10 and 11 is this. Although the Jews have stumbled, they'll be restored after the time of the Gentiles. That God has not rejected his people completely. In fact, Paul's first gonna talk in Romans 10 about why Israel stumbled, sort of a post-game analysis on where did things go wrong? Why are so many turning away from Jesus? And secondly, in Romans 11, he's gonna say God has not rejected his people and here's what God is doing to restore Israel. Here's what this is gonna look like. So let's read. Romans, we'll pick up actually at the very end of nine where we left off last time. Paul says, so what does all this mean? We get a nice little summary. Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. Yes, getting right with God. That's what so many religions are all about. They sense something wrong and they want to be right with God. And he says the Gentiles weren't even really looking. They were made right with God by faith, by trusting. Not by works, 
but by faith. That's been the message of the book of Romans. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. We see two ways to get right with God, by trust or faith or by works and by trying to accomplish the law. He says, why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. And so we see how to get right with God, either by pursuing it by works of the law or receiving it by faith. This is the big difference between Christianity and religion. It's the difference between do and done. Religion says do, Christianity says done. Jesus has already done it. And we need to receive his finished work on our behalf. Jesus kept the law in a way that we never could. He was perfect. And yet then he died on the cross for our sins. And so it's by receiving him, by receiving his forgiveness that we are made right with God and there's nothing we can do to earn it. He says, the Jewish people stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You see, the point is belief. Jesus quoted these verses from Isaiah here that he's quoting and Jesus says, those are about me. And so, you know, the, the Jewish people, the, the religious people in the day of Christ, in the day of Paul, they were trying so hard to follow the law of God perfectly and they're running along and all of a sudden, right in their path, you see a crucified Messiah. You see the cross. And like, what is that? That does not fit in with the works and what I'm supposed to do to earn God's forgiveness. And so it created a real dilemma. It was a stumbling block for them. It says in several places in the New Testament. And so they either, they either see it and they connect the dots and they realize, wait a minute, I'm trying to keep the law perfectly, but I can't keep the law perfectly. I'm not good enough. I need a different solution. And so what we have right in front of us, plan A is try to be perfect. Plan B is receive from Jesus Christ. Paul says in 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's longing for his fellow Israelites to be saved. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Yes, he's not doubting the zeal or the fervency or the earnestness or the sincerity of so many of these religious folk among the Israelites. He says he's not questioning their zeal. The problem is it's misguided zeal. It's kind of like when some of us try to dance and we have plenty of zeal, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. <laughs> and it's not a pretty scene, okay? We don't need more zeal. We need something more. And Paul says that's the way it is here. They have a zeal, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. They're going in the wrong direction here. Religious people can be very, very, very zealous. Religiosity, pursuit of rituals can drive people very powerfully because when you think my salvation is on the line, the eternal life, it can drive you to do incredible things. You know, I, just a couple weeks ago, I got a chance to go to Egypt for a day and I got to tour the pyramids. And what I don't think I fully realize is that the, you know, the entire gigantic, you know, uh, it's 500 feet tall, the Great Pyramid there in Cairo, it's built to house a single tomb for a pharaoh. 
All of this work went into building a single tomb and the goal of this was to get to the afterlife. They, built, they would build uh, living quarters for slaves that would work on the, the pyramids and what they would do is eight months a year they would work on their fields and then four months a year they would come here and they would build the pyramids when the Nile was at flood. So much money, so much effort went into this and our tour guide kept saying, these people knew they were gonna die. They knew that this life had an end point. They were trying to get to the next life and they were doing everything they possibly could to get there. That's what religion does is it drives us. We can never rest, we can never have peace because we're going, we're going, we're trying to be even better, even better. We're never sure if we're good enough. Religious people can be very zealous. Paul talks about his own history as a Pharisee. And he says, you know, if anyone had a, right, had a mind to put confidence in, in his own religious works, I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day, I was of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee, which was the highest, most rigorous sect of Judaism. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I killed people. I was so zealous for what I thought was the right thing. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. No one was better than me. No one was earning salvation more than me if you could earn your salvation. But he says, but all those things I consider lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and count them but rubbish that I may know him and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Paul learned this lesson the hard way through decades of blood and sweat and tears and coming to the end of himself. Religious people can be very zealous and often they know some things. They, they know a lot of half-truths. They know how good God is. They know they don't measure up. The problem is what do they do with that? They just get to work and they try to work even harder. He says, for not knowing God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Yeah, they didn't really understand how righteous God really was. Religious people tend to underestimate God's righteousness and overestimate their own. This was one of the goals that Jesus had in his teaching as he was trying to put the bar back up where it belonged. Pharisees of his day were like, well, you know, I've never committed adultery. Jesus is like, okay, good. <laughs> you weren't supposed to. <laughs> Have you ever lusted after someone else in your heart? You're guilty, uh, as guilty as the guy that committed adultery before God. They were like, whoa. Yeah, I've lusted. They didn't say that, but they must have been thinking that. They're like, I've never murdered anybody, and Jesus is like, congratulations. <laughs> but have you ever been angry at someone? Unrighteously angry? You know, a lot of times, um, my heart is raging, and it's only lack of courage <laughs> of carrying out our anger that, that really holds us back a lot of times. Jesus says, anger in your heart, you're guilty enough for the fires of hell. And so he's trying to set the bar up where it belongs to drive them to grace, to show them their need for grace. And so Paul says they, they didn't really understand God's righteousness and tried to establish their own. That is the problem, that is human pride. Right there, we try to establish our own righteousness and there's a humility that's required to come to God through Jesus Christ. That's why he's called the stumbling block because we don't like to hear that. It's a blow to our pride. 
You know, if you want to pursue God by works, I hope you're ready for a moral audit at the end of your life. You know what an audit is? It's where, you know, if you get audited by the IRS, you have to, you know, get out your receipts and your pay stubs and you have to show them that what you did, what, what you reported on your taxes, that you really paid all your taxes. They're looking through every expense, every income item. A moral audit is where God, he has these things called the books of works. He talks about these in Revelation 20. And it says when you get to heaven, if your name's not in what's called the book of life, you, he opens up the books of works. God is keeping records of all of your deeds, all of your words, all of your thoughts. And you're gonna have to sit down with him and he's gonna open the books and you're gonna have to answer. You know, you might have a volume that was every th- all the good you were supposed to do and didn't do, May 2019. <laughs> all the envious thoughts that you had, May 7th, 2019. <laughs> all of your complaining, all of your ingratitude, any moment that you did not love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, that could take up, that could take up multiple shelves worth of volumes. Are you ready to stand under that kind of scrutiny? God remembers your life even better than you do. That's the fate waiting for people that try to pursue God based on their own righteousness, that try to establish their own. God's like, you're trying to establish your own righteousness? You're living in some kind of fantasy world. But there is an alternative to the books of works. It says in Revelation 20 that there are some that receive righteousness by faith. And it says there's a book called the Book of Life. And if your name's in that book, you get right on through into heaven. It's only those who aren't in the book of life that get evaluated on the books of works. And the way we get into the book of life is not you gotta be born into the right family or somebody else can't put your name in there. It's you placing your trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the simple, radical, offensive to some, best news in the world to others message of Christianity. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let that sink in, the end of the law. You'd never know that the way Christians talk about the law, the way they're always putting rules in front of people's faces. But this is consistent with what he's been talking about in Romans. It's through the law, I died to the law. You're no longer under law, but you're under grace. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and of death. And so Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, no longer me straining and striving and trying to do, do, do. It's resting in what has been done. He who believes in Christ will not be disappointed. No longer do we stumble over the stumbling block, but we see, we see, that, we see Christ, the cornerstone, and it's not a stumbling block, it's not foolishness, it's the best news I've ever heard. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. That's the message of salvation. That's the message of grace. It's simple trust. It's, it's crying out. We just need to call out to him. Like a person who's, who's drowning and is calling out for help. And God says, I will reach in and I will save you. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Yeah, it's not just saying the magic words. There's a heart 
There's a heart attitude here. God says, I hate it when people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. No, he says, the heart you believe with the mouth you confess, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I know some of us have been disappointed a lot of times in our lives. We've trusted people, we've gotten our hopes up only to have them dashed again and again. And God says, if you believe in my son, you will never be disappointed. In fact, you're gonna be amazed because no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It hasn't even entered into the heart of man the good things that God has prepared for those who love him. He says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek with God. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call the name of the Lord will be saved. And so God is putting forth this message now. And salvation was always by faith. But there's a new, there's a new direction here um, as God has, has turned to work with, with the Gentiles for a time, as we saw last week. And it's at this point that, God, that, that Paul takes a little bit of a tangent for a point of application. He's talking about this message of salvation. And he's talking, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's with, we need to believe and place our trust in Jesus. And he says, you know, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they've not heard? And then he takes it a step further. He says, how can they hear without a speaker or a preacher, it says in some translations, just somebody that proclaims a good news? And how will they speak unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so what he's saying here is, there's kind of a progression here. He says, okay, people need to call on, on the name of Christ in order to be saved. Well, how can they call if they haven't believed in him? But how can they believe in him if they haven't heard the news? And how can they hear unless somebody opens their mouth and tells them? And how can somebody speak unless they're sent? This is not just a single individual, but there's, there's, it's kind of a group effort as we move into the world with this message. We're ambassadors, it says now, of the good news. We come bringing a message from a foreign king, Yahweh, the God of the universe, with a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, in the Old Testament, when God was working mainly through Israel, there was kind of a come and see approach. You could come, you could come to Jerusalem, you could come to the temple there, you could, you could come there, and yes, there was some going out. And of course, we talked in Romans 1 that there's a certain sense where anybody in the world at any time, you can look at creation and you can learn things about God. And there's even enough there, I argued, that you could call out to God for salvation. But it was primarily a come and see approach. Whereas now, it's a go and tell approach. He shifted here from come and see to go and tell. And if people are gonna hear and believe and call, we're gonna need senders and speakers. So that, that's a part that Christian believers can play, to tell people about this message of forgiveness. It's such good news, we gotta tell. And um, it's not like you're either a speaker or a sender. I think we should all be doing both of these things. I mean, pretty much any of us can speak, right? And um, when I think sending, I think you know, we gotta think in terms of trying to mobilize other people to speak. That's really what a sender is. And um, really, we need to have a pretty broad perspective on what it means to mobilize others 
that you have a role, a direct role and also an indirect role as part, you know, trying to help other people become speakers. You know, giving is one way we do this. Giving money, giving of our possessions. You know, I've got several friends who um, felt called by God to quit their job, sell all their stuff, and move to the other side of the world to um, serve the Lord there, to tell people about Christ there. And, you know, I can't join them you know, um, I feel called to do what I'm doing here, but what I can do is I can give some money each month to help support them, and if an, enough of us have done that, it's, it can support someone who has sent. Um, there's also another pastor over in India who's not someone sent from America to there, but someone who came to Christ there, but it's an incredibly poor country. And so um, through an organization, Christian organization, I'm able to give for 100 bucks a month I can supply all of the expenses that he needs to run his ministry and feed his family so he can focus on preaching the Bible to super poor people there. And I support him for two years and then his, his fellowship will get big enough that they can support him and then I can move on and support somebody else. It's another way to mobilize people creatively. And so with, with our money, we can give money to a lot of different people, a lot of different causes to mobilize speakers. And we can get this, this good news out. There's also been people that, you know, their car breaks down and they don't have the money to fix it, but I'm like, okay, I know that, I know that you use that car to serve other people a lot. You're always driving people around in that thing all over the city. And we're, my wife and I decided we'll give some money to help this person fix their car. Again, that's, I view that as sending, sending a speaker somewhere that I can't get to. I think encouraging is another, another thing that we can do encouraging one another, encouraging people to, to open their mouths. That's what I'm doing right now, right? I'm saying, open your mouth. If you've received this forgiveness, if you, if you have the, the word of God given to you, you need to give it to somebody else. How can they hear if you don't open your mouth? Teaching. You know, what I'm doing right now, I'm teaching this passage. That is mobilized, that is, that is part of what is sending. Trying to encourage other people to open up. Praying. Jesus said, the harvest is so plentiful and the workers are so few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into his harvest. And so, you know, we can make a habit of praying for other people. Praying for certain ministries that God will lead us to pray for. This is something that should be part of our spiritual lives. And so whether it's giving or encouraging or teaching or praying or a host of other things, we need to think creatively about how we can send. And um, we also need to think what are the most effective ways that I can use the time, the money, the gifts that God's given me, either to speak directly or to mobilize other people to do so? It's a great privilege. Some people view this like a responsibility, and um, it is a responsibility. He get, lays it on us right here, but um, I think it's important to remember the incredible privilege this is. You ever, t you ever, you ever been to a baptism party where several people give their testimonies and then get baptized. They talk about how God saved them, how God changed their lives. They, they just, they break down crying because of God's grace and God's faithfulness to them. It brings tears to your eyes. I love talking to someone and just hearing them share their story of how they met Christ. What an encouraging conversation topic. We can just tell each other our stories of how we met Christ. And, and that the thought that I get to play any part 
in someone else's life, someone else meeting Christ, having their lives transformed. I look around this room and I see so many transformed lives because of God's grace. So Paul says, with this good news, if it's belief, if that's the way to righteousness, we gotta open our mouths. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, he said, is his conclusion. And you know, like I said, there's a lot we can learn about God through looking at his creation. But the word of God has a power and a clarity that that general revelation lacks. And therefore, God's word must be at the heart of all that we do. God's word must be at the center of all that we do. We must devote ourselves to learning it and to feeding on it. You know, there's times, I had an experience recently where I just was like, I woke up in the morning and I was feeling very not godly at all. Very unspiritual. Did, I just felt lethargic. I just felt like uh, I lacked energy. I lacked, and my heart toward God and toward anything spiritual felt completely cold. And I, I saw my Bible sitting there, and that's usually when I read my Bible first thing in the morning. And I'm just staring at that Bible and I just felt like I did not have the strength to open that thing. And I just sat there wrestling for some time feeling so lethargic, starting to move and then pulling my phone out and scrolling through something meaningless. And this verse kept running through my mind. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And I thought, if I can just get to that Bible and open it, I think I'm gonna be okay. And I did, on the strength of this verse. And once I started reading, it was like, Suddenly I wasn't crazy anymore. <laughs> Suddenly I became surprisingly sane and tuned in to spiritual realities. The Word of God has a power to it. We need to learn to feed on it like our life depends on it because it does. We must preach the Word in season and out of season, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.2. You know, some of us, um, we feel kind of discouraged. We feel like I'm trying my best to serve God and no one's responding. We need to keep preaching the word in season, out of season, no matter what. We cannot turn away from the powerful, living word of God. We must never lose heart. As long as we have the word of God, you know, some of us are facing uh, setbacks, discouragement. It just feels like we can't get anything done in our ministry. You know what's encouraging to me? The fact that we're sitting in a room right now with a couple hundred people and the Word of God is on the screen. And that's what we did last Monday. And that's what we did the Monday before that. And there's another group a couple miles from here that's even bigger, another three or four hundred people doing the same thing. And this Thursday, there's going to be a couple other groups of several hundred doing the same thing, all part of this ministry. Last Friday night, I got together with about 12 or 13 other guys, and we just sat down, we opened the Bible, we prayed, we read, we discussed, we prayed, and we hung out. And I was thinking, you know, there's 117 other cell groups that are doing the exact same thing right now. Groups of 10, 15 people opening the Word of God, reading, praying, discussing. That is a winning strategy. If we keep doing that, good things are gonna happen. The soil may be hard, people may not be responding, but we gotta keep sowing that seed because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We must never, ever abandon 
our commitment to the word of God, and that's one thing I love, love, love about our church. Is we're all trying to fade into the background and put the word of God forward. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The message is so simple, and yet God, God is stretching out his hands to the people of Israel. They rejected him uh, in large part. And we might wonder, you know, God, God is rejected by Israel. Is he just sitting there with his arms crossed, just being like, oh, you know, you're gonna come crawling back? No. God's arms are open. He says, I love you. Come back home. And that's God's posture toward you tonight. Maybe you feel like I've done so many things. I can't even believe I showed up here tonight. I'm so ashamed of myself. And, it, and God says, all day long, I've stretched out my arms to you. To you. And I don't care. You rejected me. I don't care. Change your mind. Come back home. He's the father in the prodigal son story waiting for that son or daughter to come back home. But Paul says Israel stumbled. They pursued righteousness according to works. They could not handle salvation by grace through faith. They were pretty offended that God was turning to the Gentiles. And so that takes us to Romans chapter 11. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. May it never be. God has a plan to restore Israel. They've rejected him, but he hasn't given up on them. And you know, um, many Christians teach what's called replacement theology. They teach that Israel had their chance, and they blew it, and now they've been replaced by the church, and they're dealt out of God's plan forever called replacement theology. But what about this verse right here? God is not done with Israel. Has God rejected his people? May it never be. He says it in the strongest terms possible. He loves his chosen people. He will never, ever break his promises to them. He made promises going all the way back to Father Abraham. He says, I'm gonna fulfill every one of those promises. I'm not a God that breaks my promises, and thank God that he's not. Unfortunately, in spite of God's great love for the Jewish people, so-called Christians have a very long history of hatred and persecution of the Jews. A lot of modern-day Christians don't realize this, and what's unfortunate is if we don't learn from our mistakes in the past, we're bound to repeat them. You can take this right back to the earliest days of Christianity. You know, in the New Testament, we do see the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had, the pow had power and did give the Christians there a hard time. Um, although it was neither the Romans nor the Jews who crucified Jesus, but it was us. It was every single one of us. He was hanging there on the cross for our sins. But um, as the decades went by, the Christians um, and the Jews, they began to, to have resentment toward the Jews. And as the Christians got more and more power, they began to turn the tables on the Jews. They began to persecute them. And we see back in the three and 400s AD, some of the most virulent sermons against the Jews after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. This goes all the way through the Middle Ages. Heavy restrictions on the Jews, not allowed to own property, forced into the money lending business. 
and um, forced to live separately, forced to dress differently by the Christians. And then even in the time of the Reformation, a guy like Martin Luther, who early on, at the time when uh, the, the Reformation was starting, he had a very kind attitude toward the Jews, and he thought they would be very responsive, and there was pretty warm relations, but later on in his life, he turned very strongly against the Jews. Here's just a, a few highlights. I just want you guys to be exposed to a little bit of this. This is in Luther's tract on the Jews and their lies. He says, what shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? I shall give you my sincere advice. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever won't burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom. Oh. Second, I advise their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise their rabbis be forbidden to teach, henceforth, on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. They have no business in the countryside. They're not lords, officials, tradesmen, or the like. Let them stay home. Sixth, I advise that m charging interest, money lending, be prohibited, and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken away from them and put aside for safekeeping. Oh, how convenient. Maybe we should just take all their money and hang on to it for safekeeping. It's no surprise, you know, th these are the roots of the Holocaust right here. At the Nuremberg trials, uh, Nazi officials were citing Luther in defense of what they did. A long history of hatred and persecution of Jews, and anti-Semitism is still alive and well today. In fact, growing. Look, Christians should never have anything to do with racism of any kind. It's completely unexcusable. We've seen that there is, there's neither Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ Jesus. It's the same Lord. We're all made in God's image should never hear of anything remotely resembling racism from Christians, and especially nothing resembling anti-Semitism. Because as Paul says, God has not rejected his people, may it never be. So what is God doing to restore Israel? Well, first of all, he's left a remnant of believers among the Jews in the time of Paul and even today. Paul says, you know, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He's like, so God's rejected the Jewish people. Well, Paul's like, I can think of at least one Jew who's a believer, and that's me. <laughs> God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in that passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Yeah, Elijah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And uh, there was a period, this is in the, the ninth century BC, where it was a real low point for the spiritual life of the nation. And Elijah, it was, just, it was just sinking in on him that nobody really cares about God. And he goes to God and he says, Lord, they've killed your prophets 
They've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they're seeking my life. Oh, woe is me. I'm the only faithful one. So Elijah's, you know, he's feeling all last of the Mohicans here. (laughs) Nobody else is faithful. And God says, what is the divine response to him? Actually, Elijah, I've kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, Elijah, you think you're the only one left? The only Jew who's faithful to me? Your calculations are off by (laughs) 6,999. And so this really is not that not that abnormal, you know. The, if you look at the Old Testament, there were times where it seemed like Israel was really on the right track, but a lot of the time you had a believing kind of core, and then you had a lot of people that were not real serious about it, not real faithful to God. And so Paul says, God has left a remnant. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There's a subset of Jews that are what's called Messianic Jews. These are Jews that have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And so they might still follow some of the, uh, the dietary laws and things like that that um, we'll actually read about this in, in Romans 14, how the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers are supposed to get along in relation to dietary laws and, and holy days and things. But he says there's a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Secondly, he says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. And so he says, the ones that rejected me, the ones that made themselves blind, God says, I've hardened them. And so if they didn't respond positively to Christ, if they shut their eyes even tighter, then eventually, as we saw last week, God will harden the heart. And so many Jews have been hardened, Paul says, just as it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. I say then, did they stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And so God's preserved a remnant. He's hardened many. But he's also moved his focus to the Gentiles, otherwise known as the church, otherwise known as spiritual Israel. He's, their trans, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now that sounds kind of petty at first, Like your girlfriend dumps you so you go start dating somebody else because you want her to see what she's missing out on. (laughs) That's not what God is doing here. It's not like God needs anyone to believe in him. But he is sort of hoping that they'll see how good the Gentiles have it and that they'll be like, I want that too. I remember as a non-Christian seeing really happy Christians and I was like, man, I wish I had what they had. That looks pretty cool. There was something appealing about it. And God says, well, if you don't want what I'm giving out, I'll move to these others that do want it. He says, now, if the Jewish people's transgression is riches for the world and, uh, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? When God brings in the fullness of the harvest of Jewish people, he says, you know, when they, when they rejected Christ, that resulted in so many good things for the Gentiles. How much better is it gonna be when they receive Christ? 
there's gonna be a great Jewish revival in the end times. In fact, the book of Revelation talks about 144,000 Jewish evangelists going out all over the world, telling people about Christ with an effectiveness unprecedented in the history of the church. Paul says, yeah, how much more will the fullness be if if their failure turned out this well for Gentiles? He says, you know, some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. So he, he switches it over to an analogy of a tree. He says, you got an olive tree, and the, the, the kind of the, you know, the stump or the trunk, that's what God's doing. And you had all these, you know, you had the Jewish people plugged into that. And it says, some of them were broken off, and you Gentiles, you were branches from a wild olive tree. You've been grafted in. And so we're growing on these wild olive trees out in the countryside, just every which direction. There's no cultivation, there's no guidance. And God breaks one off. And you could do this with olive trees. You could just, just kind of stick it on there and like duct tape it on. And it would actually become part of that tree. And normally they would take cultivated branches and stick them on a wild one. But you could take a wild one and stick it on a, a cultivated olive tree. It was just unusual. And so God says, this is sort of unusual what, what, what I'm doing here. I'm taking wild branches, the Gentiles, and I'm sticking them on my tree. <laughs> and so they kind of fit. And as a result, you get to receive the blessing God promised Abraham and his children. You get to share in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. That's right, we get, to, we, get to, we get to partake in some of the blessings. We don't replace Israel, but we get to share in some of the blessings while not canceling out any of the future promises to them. But he says, you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You're just a branch, not the root. Yeah, you can, you can see they have actually some tension between the Jewish and the Gentile believers here in this, in this church, actually in a lot of parts of the early church. And Paul's like, you know, on the one hand, he's, he's telling the Jewish people, you know, God's allowed to work through the Gentiles, and you've got to accept them fully. But then he's talking to the Gentiles. He's like, you guys, don't think you're hot stuff in and of yourselves. Don't be arrogant toward these Jews just because you got, you got grafted into their tree. Well, the branches were broken off to make room for me. Yeah, true, but remember, they were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ, and you're there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God didn't spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. And so he's saying, look, Gentiles, if you're going to get arrogant, God can go a different direction. He's done it before. I mean, he broke, the, he broke some of these Jewish branches off their own tree. He could very easily break the Gentile branches off of the Jewish tree. In fact, he says, you by nature, you were a branch from a wild olive tree, So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he'll be far more eager to graft the original branches back where they belong. And so here, fourth and finally, we see God will one day move his focus back to the Jews. Yes, for a time, Israel's loss is the Gentiles' gain, but one day he's gonna move his focus back to the Jews. He will get back to the Jewish people. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so you won't be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And so there's a full number of Gentiles that God is gathering in, and he knows that exact number. But he says, all Israel will be saved. God is gathering Gentiles right now, but once he hits that magic number and he knows exactly who it is, he knows who the last person is who's gonna come to Christ before he ends this phase in his plan, and he moves on to the next phase. I think a timeline might help. So here you've got God's promise to Abraham in 2000 BC, and you have the whole Old Testament. God is working primarily through Israel. But then after the cross of Christ, we see God moving in this different direction. We see now we've moved into the age of the church, the times of the Gentiles, Jesus calls it. Spiritual Israel. As Jesus said in Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations and be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so God says, you know, Israel was in their land, but pretty soon Jesus says, only a few decades after his own death, Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed by the Romans, the temple will be destroyed, and Jerusalem will fall into Gentile control, and it will not be under the control of the Jews until when? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We live now in the times of the Gentiles. What's interesting though is we've seen only in the last half a century, we've seen Suddenly, out of nowhere, the Jewish people, those scattered across the whole world for 2,000 years, living in small communities, persecuted constantly, have been regathered and reassembled in their own land, in their own nation, and even are in control of Jerusalem at this point. A feat that's just as was predicted in the Old Testament, that in the last days God would regather his people in preparation for the final end times revival of the Jewish people. What scripture says too is that the end of the church age, there's gonna be this event called the rapture where God comes and he takes all Christians to heaven, leaving a world full of non-Christians. And apparently, perhaps that's the moment of the great revival among the Jewish people. It will also issue in a great time of suffering called the great tribulation, the last seven years of human history. But then at that point, God is going to set up his millennial kingdom on earth where it will be a renewed earth. He'll be reigning from Jerusalem. All of these promises in the Old Testament that all the nations will stream to Jerusalem to worship and we're gonna have super long lives and things like that. that that's the millennial kingdom. And that's a period of time before the final eternal state of heaven. But God's gonna fulfill his promises to the Jews in the Old Testament during that millennial kingdom. Yes, he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. Yeah, there was a lot of hostility from the Jewish people, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved. Why? For the sake of the fathers and all the promises that God made to them over the centuries. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God makes a promise, he doesn't take it back. Especially when he says this is a permanent, eternal promise. And it's good to know that that's the kind of God that we serve. Well, in conclusion, what have we learned? God's always faithful to his promises, and it's a good thing. We can trust him. We do already see the nation of Israel regathered as predicted in the scriptures. And if you'd like more information on that prophecy, we've got a free book we give out. 
that uh, gives quite a bit of detail on it. We right now are living in a brief gap in God's work with the Jewish people. I guess it's a gap that's lasted about 2,000 years, but in the grand scheme of things, it's really not that long in the, in the scope of eternity. And um, we get to bring a message of good news. A good news that says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Maybe tonight is the night where you will experience the truth of that promise. It's from the word of God. All right, well, let's pray. Yeah, Lord, thanks to your God that keeps your promises. We don't have to worry that you're going to go back on things that you said you're going to do. We can build our lives in you. We can trust you, God, that, that your, faithful, your, your trustworthiness builds a foundation of trust. And because you are faithful, we can put our faith in you. And we can know that we can do so, without, and we're not going to be disappointed. I pray, God, too, for anybody here tonight who's never responded to you standing there with your arms wide open. I pray that tonight they would take that step of faith toward you and receive that salvation you promise. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.